0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church Podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. We all know what it means to have an elephant in the room, which is basically the idea that you have a large, looming, uncomfortable topic that no one really wants to talk about. Everybody knows it's there, but no one really wants to talk about it. So what we're talking about in this series is basically elephants in the church, which means there's major issues in the church that a lot of people know that are there, but they really don't want to talk about because it's an uncomfortable often an uncomfortable. Conversation, but as a healthy church, which is a church that we hope to be, you know, a healthy church addresses those problems. They don't simply hide from those problems. And fortunately, we have a guidebook that helps walks us through walk us through these uncomfortable conversation. And that guidebook is the book of First Corinthians. And some of you know, or most of you know, that the book of First Corinthians was written by by the Apostle Paul. And we see in, throughout the book of Corinthians, and really throughout the New Testament, that the Apostle Paul wasn't somebody known to hide from the elephants and the big issues in the church. Instead, he would hit them head on. He would deal with them. And so, because he saw them as obstacles to helping the church or having the church grow, and where God would have the, the church grow. Anyway, last week, to give a little bit of background about uh, the church in Corinth. Again, the Apostle Paul, he was a church planter. He traveled around three missionary journeys and he planted churches and he happened to plant a church in the city of Corinth. Those were probably home churches that met in different homes at the time. And like Austin mentioned last week, it was very similar, the city of Corinth was very similar to the city of Pittsburgh, about size and, and different character and that sort of thing. Anyway, we learned that he spent about, uh, Paul spent about 18 months in Corinth building up the church, and then he went away and moved on to different other church planting activities. But at some point, he caught wind that there were some some problems going on in Corinth, some some elephants in the church so to speak. And because he saw himself as a spiritual dad, a spiritual father, someone who did the original church plant there, he couldn't ignore him. He knew he couldn't ignore those particular problems. And so he began to correspond with the church. Several different letters that would be read within the context of the congregation. And one of those letters we know as 1 Corinthians. And as we know about 1 Corinthians, is that, is that what we know about Paul, is that Paul was an excellent A letter writer. A very good letter writer. He was very good in the art of letter writing and rhetoric. And so he knew how to kind of uh, start a letter by getting on their good sides. By talking about all the wonderful things they've done, all who they are. You know, he talked about how they have all the spiritual knowledge, these spiritual gifts, and how he prayed for them on a regular basis. Uh, But then before you know it, he kind of begins to kind kind of hit them pretty hard with a pretty hard critique. But he does, he begins to address all the elephants in the particular room, kind of one at, a, one at a time, all the way down into chapter 16. And again, these are issues that it's likely that the people, most of the people had known about or had heard about, but they chose to avoid. They might have talked about them privately, but again, they weren't often talked about publicly. And so what we see Paul doing in 1 Corinthians is kind of getting the ball rolling, so to speak, beginning to talk about these conversations. And that's what I want to do today is kind of get the ball rolling and talk about what I consider the biggest elephant in the church and what it is, the elephant of non-discipleship, the elephant of non-discipleship. Now, for those who might not be familiar with what I mean by non-discipleship, I basically mean, especially in the case of Corinth, you had a church where you had... Probably the majority of people would say that they were saved, that they had accepted Christ as Lord, but yet we saw people that weren't really growing in Christian maturity. They were remaining babies in Christ. There was no spiritual transformation going on, and so Paul kind of begins to kind of alludes to this actually in the in the in the first two verses of chapter three, where he writes, "Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ." I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still very worldly. Again, so he's, he's addressing these people as spiritual infants, and, and it doesn't take a scholar to realize that this is not a compliment. It's kind of, even seems like an insult. He's saying, you know, by now, you people, after so many years, you should pretty much be mature in your relationship with God. You should have a spiritual maturity about you. But yet they were remaining as spiritual infants, so much so that some people suggest, and even suggested Paul is suggesting, that all the subsequent problems, all the subsequent elephants in the church, are really just symptom of the greater elephant. Again, the elephant of non-discipleship. That if they would the people who really got serious about engaging in discipleship, they would not have all these problems, or at least some of these problems that we'll see later in the chapters. And then what's true of Paul back then is really true of the church today, not only our church, but the church across uh, the country and across the world. And a guy named Dallas Willard kind of nails this pretty well when he says, when he writes, Non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. It is not the much-discussed moral failures, financial abuses, or the amazing similarity between Christians and non-Christians. These are only effects of the underlying problem." The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers now is their failure to be con- constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. He's talking about a failure of discipleship is what he's talking about. And so again, what uh, if Paul and even Dallas Willard was alive today, he's passed a couple of years ago, they would probably get together and pretty agreed that the biggest elephant in the church is the elephant in non-discipleship. And I would have to as a pastor, I would probably have to agree with them. And it's hard for me to admit, because I am the pastor. I am supposed to be the spiritual leader of the church. But yet I see still see a lot of spiritual immaturity in the church. In fact, I had to write my, my biblical thesis, or my thesis on this particular topic about spiritual formation in the local church when I was working through my doctorate at Fuller. And I had to give evidence of spiritual immaturity. And what I said is what I see is, what I what I see here, and I've seen in other churches, is that basically you have at least four things that give evidence to spiritual immaturity. The first being is what some refer to as folk theology or folk religion. That's the idea that people come into a church bringing their own religious baggage that they think everybody else should believe the same way about. And in other words, they bring their way of thinking about God, thinking about the Bible, thinking about the, the worship setting, whatever. They bring that into a church. And what happens is when people don't subscribe to their particular theology, especially from the leadership perspective, what happens is they get mad. They leave. And if you want evidence of that, I can sit them after church and I'll give you names after names that because they had disagreements about the basics of what they thought was important theology. And we thought it really wasn't that important. Anyway, so you have, again, that's a demonstration of spiritual maturity. And then an the obvious evidence is, is character issues. You know, you have people who were baptized, and this is back in Corinth as it is today, people that were baptized in their faith, you know, and they, they were supposed to be going on that pathway of discipleship we talked about, but instead of what happened, they fall back into their old ways. And nothing really changed. In fact, it's something I wrote about in my thesis again. I didn't give names. But I said what upset me is that I baptized, one baptized believer, the person's not here anymore, so I, you know, but I baptized the person several years ago, and several months later, I see him on Facebook just writing some very obscene stuff, obscene graphics and everything else that was on there, and I had to call him out on it. And again, what bothered me is like, where's the disconnect? What happened here? And again, what I saw, there was a failure... Of discipleship, in many ways, failure on our part to make sure when he stepped out of the baptistry that he was going to be stepping in to a pathway of discipleship. And then another evidence of of, of failure of discipleship is the fact that you've got a lot of people that aren't serving, they're not serving in any capacity in church, and worse than that, they're not understanding that they have called, they've been gifted for a specific call in the kingdom of God to do a specific work for God in the kingdom. So again, uh, an evidence of spiritual immaturity is the fact of people not knowing that they have a role to play in the church or in the kingdom of God. And the other evidence of of spiritual immaturity is basically sometimes it falls in leadership. You know, we've been guilty of, other churches are guilty of sometimes bringing people into leadership just because they possess a certain amount of skills in the business world. And those skills are transferable into the church. And so that's how a lot of churches promote leaders, but a lot of times what happens is they pay no attention to the depth of their spiritual maturity. And so over time, you may have a spiritual failure, a leadership failure. And what happens is because leaders, the definition of leader is simply a person of influence, and they have influence, when a leader falls, they bring a lot of people with them. Those are all evidence of spiritual maturity, not only in maturity, not only in our church, but churches across the world. Now at this time, some of you may be saying, listen Chuck, you know, you're being a little hard on yourself. And I am, I am being a little bit hard on myself to make a point, because some of you are saying, listen, I, I know people in this church that have just been on this pathway of discipleship and just growing by leaps and bounds. And I would say that's true, I see them too. But I would say also for the one or two that I do see, Growing in her faith. I probably see a dozen or more that are stuck. Spiritually stuck in the exact same spot they were 14 years ago when I got here. No growth whatsoever. And that's again typical not only in our church, but churches all across the world. And again, because this is an elephant in the church, when you start bringing up an elephant of non-discipleship, you know it's an elephant when people are giving pushback. And I sense a certain amount of probably pushback some of you that you No, what Chuck, you're, you're again, you're being too hard. We got discipleship happening all over the place. People are growing their faith. But at the same time, I suspect there's a number of you people that have been around for a while that say, Yeah, Chuck, you're right. I see it. I know people that came into church with such an excitement, such an encouragement, uh, just such a joy and a commitment to Christ. And then what happens a few months later, they basically fall back to their own ways. And then there's a the third group that I would say, I really don't care. In fact, they would probably ask me, they would probably say something like, why bother with discipleship? After all, I know I'm saved. What more could I possibly want than an eternity spent with God? That's a good question. But if you're one of the people that would ask a question like that, I'd throw a question back at you and say, why would you want to spend an attorney with God You have no desire to spend your life with now. Why would you want to spend eternity with a God you have absolutely no desire to spend a moment with in your life right now? There's, again, an inconsistency there. And again, God didn't send his son Jesus to die on the cross so that we can be pew sinners, pew warmers, and that someday, when the rapture comes, when Jesus comes back in the clouds and raptures up into the heavens, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't uh, save us for that. No, he saved us that we can begin to experience the kingdom life right now where we're at. And, he, and the other thing is that you know, Jesus never made discipleship an option. Every week, our benediction says with Jesus, saying, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That Jesus' command. Go and make disciples. And again, a lot of people really don't want much from Jesus other than His blood. His blood from on the cross. That's all they want. They want the blood of the cross that would become their ticket into heaven someday. And there's a word for that. A guy named A.W. Tozer, a philosopher, a pastor, he makes a good statement about these people. He calls them vampire Christians. People that say to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life? And I'll see you in heaven. Hard words, vampire Christians. I want literally blood. Now don't get me wrong. You know, as the song goes, there's precious blood. There's power, power, and that wonder working blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. But the blood wasn't just again so that we can get our ticket in heaven. The blood was to open the doorway for an eternal life or the kingdom of God right now. The full abundant life that Jesus says is available. That he said in John 10.10 when he says, The thief, being Satan, comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. And I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He wants to give us more. And so again, Christianity isn't just about getting a little bit of Jesus' blood so I can get a ticket in heaven. But it's also not, you know, becoming a Christian is not so you can kind of, you know, kind of make a social statement. You know, that I'm a Christian and you're not. You know, that I'm saved and you're not. In fact, I was reminded of a, of a slogan I hate to say it, probably goes back to the 80s or 90s. Some of you may be familiar with it, where it was a slogan that would end up on a bumper sticker or license plate that said, "Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, just forgiven." What is that saying? It's the same to the world, saying, "Hey, listen, I'm a loser, you're a loser. We're both losers. But the difference between you and me is I'm going to heaven and you're not." Is that all God would do for us? That seems kind of weak theology. You know, again, as people saying, as somebody saying, you know, you know, we both lie, cheat, steal, we both run and smoke and chew and run with those who do, whatever the old saying goes. But the difference is I'm going to heaven, and you're not. Na-na-na-na-na. I'm special. That's not only a bad bumper sticker, a bad license plate, that's bad theology. Because it lacks any, any power to be different in this world. Merely forgiven does not produce change. Merely forgiven does not make you a good parent. Merely forgiven does not make you a good spouse. Merely forgiven does not keep you from, from looking at porn at night. Merely Forgiven does not keep you from engaging in addictive behavior. Merely Forgiven does not keep you from gossiping. Merely Forgiven does not keep you from going through all these different divisions in the church or outside in the world. Merely Forgiven does not keep you from posting junk on the internet and social media that you shouldn't be doing. It does has no power to do any of that. In fact, it's an insult to God because it makes God to be out this... It's kind of like a giant retail clerk that's sitting up there in heaven waiting for everybody to come up and then kind of putting a scan over them. You know, barcode reader. And You, you all know what barcodes are. So the things that are on every single box package nowadays. And the barcode identifies what's in the package. And so, again, people think of God as he's sitting up there with a barcode reader. And what is he doing? He's reading their forehead... And the forehead says, yep, baptized, accepted Jesus, you're in. Weren't baptized, didn't accept Jesus, you're out. Is that the kind of guy you want to worship? Now about this time, before you get the heresy police after me, <laughs> I'm not saying that anything besides faith will get you into heaven. Again, as a passage that speaks to this, that I believe in believe in definitely believe in it's called it's Ephesians 2 8 9 again written by Paul he says for it is by grace you re- you have been saved in other words unmerited in favor through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no man can boast no one can boast it says you can't do anything to earn your way back into heaven if you could we wouldn't need Jesus Christ but people stop here they read this passage But they stop and they don't read the next passage. The one that comes right after it. Nine is ten. Where Paul says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared and demands for us to do. It seems inconsistent. But he's saying, Works are going to get you in heaven. But once you are saved, you better do some work work on yourself allow God to make you into his image and make you into the image of his son so that you can begin to continue on his good works in the world. Now some of you may be saying, well Chuck, okay, I think I'm getting what you're saying. I, I, you're you're kind of hitting me hard a little bit, but I think I got it. I think you're just saying that I got to be a better Christian. I got to, If I'm going to wear the label Christian, you know, I, better, I better look pretty good. I better dress, clean myself up pretty good, right? You know, and I got to play the part. Or that i got to be an expert. i got to be better at managing my sin. And I'm saying, no, that's not what I'm saying. Because again, that's not Christianity. A lot of people are good at it. A lot of people are good at acting apart and managing their sin. They know how to keep the big sins. They know what the big sins are and they know how to keep those under cover. And most the most part, they know when to bring the little sins out when it's safe to bring those sins out. You know, for the most part, they keep them undercover until something occurs and they just kind of pop out there, right? And they, they, they know how to play the part. They know it's supposed to go to church on Sundays. Even on snowy days, it's supposed to go to church. Even when you're on vacation. How many of you raise your hand high? <laughs> go to church on vacation? A well, few people are being honest and saying, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm on vacation, why would I go to church? You know, Debbie said the same thing to me last week and I said, Listen, we've got to go to church. I didn't know. So, you know <laughs> up. <laughs> I lost my place again. <laughs> Take a vacation from church. Take a vacation from church. What I'm saying is that Yeah, we know to play the part. You go to church, you give the offering plate, you, you serve. You know, you you just do the right thing, but you get out into the public or in your own private social situations and all help like breaks loose, You know? And we see it. We see it not necessarily in the homes and the public. We also see it on things like social media where people are going, yeah, and acting one way in church in a totally different way out in social media. And if someone would to confront this person and say, you call yourself a Christian? What's going on here? A lot of people, I think, would just say, hey, listen, you know what? You know what? Jesus and I... You know, we have, a relate, we have an understanding. You know, he doesn't bother me too much, and I don't bother him. It's all good. It's all good. I hate that saying, but that's what I think people say. It's all good. But it's not all good. Because you're not doing this. You're not carrying out the good that you should be doing. In fact, you're acting like what Paul would refer to as a carnal Christian. Where do we see Paul referring to these people as carnal Christian. Anybody know them? Writing the verse that we started with today in a different translation. See, the original translation, the one we used the NIV, he says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, near infants in Christ, but the King James' origin, which is a little harder to read, a little more wooden, Mentions the word carnal. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. A lot of too many untos there. That's why I don't use that translation. (laughs) But again, you know, he's saying, He says, I can't speak to you like you're spiritual because you're not. You're worldly, you're fleshly. In fact, that's what the word carnal means is fleshly because it appears, you know, in fact you look, you go to a carnival, the word carnival basically means something that appeals to the fleshly appetite. Entertainment, food, that type of thing. Why do you, was carnival cruise line call itself carnival? You don't go there because you're looking to be spiritual. You're looking there because you enjoy all the enticements of that particular place. And again, Paul is Paul's not thinking about carnivals, he's not thinking about cruises, but he's thinking about Christians who claim to be Christians, but they have one foot in the church and the other foot in the world. And that's a problem. Anyway, I've got to start to wind this up, And what else I'm saying is, again, I want you to understand that discipleship is not an option. And discipleship, again, is the cause of a lot of the problems we will see in Corinthians, and a lot of the cause of the problems we see in our church and other churches across the world. But also see that, again, Christianity is not about just getting enough of Jesus' blood to, get, to make sure you got your ticket into heaven. It's not enough, making you, it's not enough to be a Christian, but to, to, to be the person who, who has the bumper sticker, whatever, again, that says, I may not be perfect, but I am forgiven. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not about managing your sin. And you say, what's it about, child? Again, it's about discipleship. Specifically, it's about accepting the imitation of Jesus Christ to enter into the kingdom of God right now. In fact, when Jesus was walking around the Sea of Galilee in the earliest part of the Gospels, he wasn't going around saying, you know, repent, I'm going to forgive you of your sins so again you can go to heaven when you die. No, he's saying the kingdom of God is now. Repent because the kingdom of God is available to you right now, or like how the message says it. He says, change your life. God's kingdom is here. In other words, You've got two options. You've got this world, you've got the other world. The world will come. Which one do you want? Change around. Turn away from the world. Turn away from the flesh and turn to God, to God and, and his kingdom. Begin to experience that kingdom to God right now. And it doesn't simply mean that you're able to manage your sin or say no to sin. as part of it. But it's really about experiencing that fullness of life that is exhibited in the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. That's what he's offering you. He's offering you a life... That works. You know, a lot of people just their lives are train wrecks. Ask them the questions. Say, "How's that working out for you?" You know, Jesus offers a life that works. And again, some of you saying, "Well, that's a you know that's a sounds like you created a big elephant in the church. How do we how do we begin to get rid this elephant?" And I would ask you the question that some of you, most of you, should know the answer of. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? It's the same way you become a disciple one piece at a time. You allow God, the Holy Spirit, to be able to, to kind of enter in and, and, and view the, the, the safe place, the places of your inner life which you might refer to as heart or soul or addiction, Jesus refers to the heart. They allow him to examine those places and reveal to you places that just do not match up, align with Jesus or the will of God. And as a lot of everybody, including myself, has those type of places. And we have to allow access because that's where the sin, that's where the, 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 the all the evil things lie, within the heart. In fact, Jesus himself said it. For from within, out of man's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make the person unclean. You want to fix the world, start with fixing your own heart. Don't there trying to fix everybody else's heart. Start with your own heart. That's what you got to do. Again, that's how you eat the elephant of non-discipleship. One bite at a time. And what this video you're going to watch shows is simply that we are to step in as a church, as individually and collectively as a church, into the pathway of discipleship so that we would become ordinary people who are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.